Good afternoon and welcome to The Handmaid's Takes, a proud mo- a proud member of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. That's slightly harder to say than I thought it would be. My name is Will and I'm joined as always by my friend, my co-host, my pod husband, Elizabeth Deanna Morris-Lakes. Hi, Liz. Hi, Will. Hello, hello pod wife. Have we ever told our listeners why I, I like immediately defaulted to you being my pod wife? I, I don't know. Go ahead and tell them and tell me in the process. Because I already have a husband. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't need That's to. That's fine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> wife is going to be a, a loaded word in this uh, conversation. <laughs> Good segue, man. We're, we're lucky that, yes, we, we we're at a point where this is still the United States of America and we don't have a pod handmade. God bless. Or a pod Martha. <laughs> or a pod commander. Or any pod Jezebels. Do you have any uh, business uh, you want to address before we get into the, the meat of it? What would what would have been... Do you have a clever name for my time travel episode? No, I'm only thinking about my episodes. <laughs> I'm only thinking when about I, myself as well. When I rename the podcast. I'm never yeah, going to come up with a, a clever name, so I'm so sorry, Goslings. You only get 50% clever names. What do I provide well, you? What do I bring to the party? Love? Sunglasses. Sunglasses. Today. Oh, yeah. Okay, do tell them why why you said that. Well, we're recording at a time maybe that we've never recorded before. I yes. don't know. I don't have a, a an exact memory for this or or records of it, but we're recording at uh uh for for me it's 1:30 on a Sunday for you it's 4:30. Mm-hmm. And uh but you're and you're sitting in the same part of your house as always, which happens to be bathed in sunlight. More so than ever before. So. The sun, as Elliot would say, sun setting, Mama, and I would say yes. Mm. Uh, but it will be going behind the trees momentarily, but it, mm. it hasn't yet. So for now, you look extremely cool. <laughs> Do and... I look like one of those cool squirtles? <laughs> yes, you look like you're a member of the the terrifying Squirtle Squad, <laughs> and like you are trying to uh, upstage me somehow, <laughs> or or one up me. <laughs> In your, your presentation you, for this audio medium. If we ever have a live episode, I'll make sure to come out with sunglasses <laughs> on that I put on as I'm walking out. So you can just mm. look at me and be like, you uh, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, okay, um, so yeah. yeah, let's. but that's my only business. Okay, good. Um, I, I saw The Lighthouse yesterday. Oh, I'm so mad. Yeah. <laughs> Blake Sorry. saw it today. Oh, yeah. Former, my brother and former uh, guest bud. Mm-hmm. Was it as what is it weird as fuck? It's great. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's great. It's my number three movie of the year as of today, October twenty seventh, twenty nineteen, behind only uh Midsummer at number two and The Farewell at number one. Well, I will say two things. The mm. first is that I'm seeing uh Midsummer tonight. Mm. Kenny and I are gonna rent it because he wants to watch horror movies since it's Halloween times. Yes, tis the season. Uh, the second thing I will say is that I just listened to the episode of Blank Check that mm-hmm. had Lulu Wang on it. Yep. Who wrote The Farewell. And as I was listening and directed. to her- And directed, yes. And as I was listening to uh, the story she was telling about what The Farewell was about, I was like, wasn't this a This American Life story that I've yep. listened to multiple times? And yes, mm-hmm. it is. 
So now I have to find this movie and watch it because that was one of my favorite stories that ever they ever put out on This American Life. It makes a great movie and it raises an interesting question that I have considered because I am always considering the Oscars. And my question is, because it was a This American Life story first, does that make The Farewell an adapted screenplay? Oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's amazing. That's an amazing question. So I'm going to have to, before I make my predictions about original and adapted screenplay, I'm going to have to Look do, at the some rules. Re- do some research into the uh, four-year consideration campaign for The Farewell and uh, nice. and other films that I might have questions about. Yeah. All right. Would you do me the honor of telling the Goslings uh, what I am going to be ranting about for the next who knows how long? Well, blessed be the fruit. We are, Ugh. in fact... Talking about The Handmaid's Tale, the TV show is your main focus, though, of course, we'll be bringing in the book, because what did I make you do before we recorded this episode? I purchased this copy of The the Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) The worst copy of it. Describe the copy of The Handmaid's Tale that I'm holding okay, up here, right wait, now. Okay, here, wait. Let me let me make your video big so I can... Okay. Okay, so it's... First off, you haven't even... You monster have not even peeled off the 20% off sticker from Target. <laughs> With the Target logo. <laughs> it is a um i mean i don't i it's it's a not black and white because it's red but it's mm-hmm. you know the only color is you know shades of red and black mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. um i guess it's red and black um mm-hmm. and then it says the handmaid's tale margaret atwood with a new introduction by the author overlaid an image of um elizabeth uh uh a beautiful what is her name Moss. Moss. (laughs) So uh, just like most shots in the television show, the cover image is a close-up on Elizabeth Moss's face. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) And and you've missed a crucial part of the cover, which um, you probably missed because it's it's so small and you're looking at it on Skype. But just above the title, The Mm -hmm. Handmaid's Tale, are the words, a Hulu original. That's not true. (laughs) That's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) that's i mean this brings up the question of what counts as a hulu original i believe this is a hulu adapted screenplay speaking yes speaking of original and and adapted screenplays (laughs) oh well we are already so fucking punchy i'm i'm so happy to be talking about this we we've we've talked about the fact that we spent perhaps a little bit too long on this podcast choosing topics that were Things that we passionately loved and enjoyed. And And we're smug for that reason. We were quote unquote smug about knowing so much about this thing that we liked. When in fact, wouldn't it be much smugger to talk about things that we hate or (laughs) have serious pet peeves about? Yes. Um, And that's why I want to talk about the Hulu original series, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And so, and yeah. I don't know if yeah. we actually actually said this before you held up the book, but when we were when you said that you wanted to do this, I was talking to you about it, mm-hmm. and you had said to me that you had not read the book yet, and I was like, oh, you, I mean, we can't have this conversation you, without talking about the book. Can I be more specific? So yes. here's here's what I remember. We we have a a, a, a Google uh, shared drive where yes. we share documents, and one of the documents is an Excel spreadsheet where we keep ideas for episodes. Mm -hmm. And when you created the spreadsheet, you made a column for whose episode it was, what the topic was, 
like a schedule and like research question mark like oh yeah because you, you I were was, tracking I w- like how much homework would you have to do yeah to do your topics and so i put uh something in the topics like uh the handmaid's tale a terrible tv show mm-hmm. and then in the research column i think i wrote read the book maybe question mark <laughs> and you put in the same field in the Excel spreadsheet, like in parentheses, like, oh, well, you have to read the book. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll read the book if I'm going to talk about this. So I went to Target. I think I told you I had the option uh-huh. to buy a different edition. Of oh, with the like the original Tale. cover? Because I really like yeah. the original cover. I think it's I don't quite think it beautiful. was original cover. I think it was more minimalist than the okay. original cover. Um, but it, I, I bought the joke edition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because I thought this this was so funny, and also <laughs> because it says with a new introduction by the author. And oh, and I was so you like, want oh, to read okay. it by I, Mark I would like to read that new introduction. It might yeah. give me more context for the podcast. And then you did not ask for this, but I also continued my homework by reading this book right here. Oh, The Testaments, which just came out. Yes. I have not read it. I can tell you a funny story about The Testaments, though. Okay. Which is that my uh, friend Brittany, who I've mentioned before, who works at Politics and Prose, uh, had to cancel coming to Elliot's birthday party because she uh, had to run the Margaret Atwood event. Oh. So she had to, because at Politics and Prose, because the Testaments was coming out. So she right. had to, she had to cancel because she would be spending time with Margaret Atwood. That's a good uh, reason as I've ever heard, I think, for canceling Early, on something. I, I was like, yeah, I, I guess it was hard to fit in uh you know this child's birthday party between margaret atwood and jane fonda who she had met on tuesday of that week oh wow okay what a week (laughs) (laughs) uh you you uh stepped on so when i held up the book and you called it the testament you stepped on a a moment where i was going to attempt to make some sort of half-hearted joke by calling this book um something like uh go set a handmaid Will is, of course, making a joke about yeah. uh, uh, the, lo- the long-awaited sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee yeah. <laughs> that we were all itching for for Which so many I, years. I, ref- I was like, maybe I'll read it, maybe I won't read it, maybe I'll get it mm-hmm. from the library, and I just, I'm not going to, because To Kill a Mockingbird is a, perf- is a perfect book. Sure. And, like, I feel like, you know, she wrote one perfect book, uh-huh. and then she never wrote anything again, and that's fine. It's more than any of us can hope for. Yes. It's more yeah. than any of us can hope for. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not here to talk about Harper Lee. <laughs> I will talk uh, briefly about Margaret Atwood. So the first, uh, I had never read The Handmaid's Tale prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, the first Margaret Atwood book that I can recall reading was Cat's Eye. Uh-huh. That was the with- second book of hers I read. Which was uh, which was homework for a freshman year of undergrad class, uh, an honors program class called Thought and Civilization. Oh, uh-huh. which is a sequel to an honors class which is just called Thought, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, or it was at the time anyway. Um, and uh, the theme of this Thought and Civilization course was adolescence, mm-hmm. and uh, specifically. Like the differences in how boys and girls are raised. Oh, that's interesting. And if that sounds like exclusionary or like 
too binary. Um, I will remind you that this was 10 years ago. And in 2009, uh, non-binary people had not been invented yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a joke. That's a stupid, that's a stupid joke. Um, so, uh, cat's eye, um, was and and of, also, also mm-hmm. for the record, our university is technically like a Christian affiliated school. So like <laughs> anything that's yeah. like, hey, have mm. you considered gender is like, what? <laughs> yeah, revolutionary. Um, so uh, Cat's Eye was a uh, highlight of taking that course. Uh, another book that I read, um, maybe sort of the counterpoint to Cat's Eye was... Um, Catcher in the Rye. I had never oh. read Catcher in the Rye before. That was my really? first time reading that. Yep. Um, I got sort of a weird uh, education um, prior to undergrad, and mm-hmm. uh, there are some big gaps. Uh, never read Lawyer of the Flies, for example. I've never read that. Okay. Well, I feel like everyone has, but and I, I had, I wouldn't have, and to be fair, I would not have read Catcher in the Rye if it had not been recommended to me after reading The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Because we didn't read it in school. Mm, CD read it, but East didn't. And I would not have read Mm. Animal Farm had I not run out of things to read and my teacher had just given it to me. (laughs) Okay. But but if they had then given me Lord of the Flies, I would have read that. Uh, So I liked Cat's Eye. I think I liked uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, sense of humor. And then uh, maybe six or seven years ago... um, I was in Tempe, Arizona, and Margaret Atwood came to visit uh, ASU, and she did a talk. Um, and uh, oh, there was also a time when did she speak at AWP? I was she the key, Dana is behind me, and she's indicate was she the keynote the first year we went? Yeah, in Chicago. In Chicago, okay. God, so did first, I not go see Margaret Atwood as the keynote? I don't know, but here's what I remember. <laughs> I I remember being at the keynote. I remember uh, someone, I I remember a stout man uh, stepping onto the stage, uh, getting up to the lectern to do an introduction. Uh And he said something like, ladies and gentlemen, or something, you know, very brief greeting. And our friend Theo was sitting next to me. Yeah. And in the pause that that man took after saying those words, he leaned back, uh, into me and he said, I'm Margaret Atwood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just it's just one of those moments when like you you have to not laugh hysterically <laughs> and you think you're going to die <laughs> like containing that. I, this is the first time I think Theo's come up on the podcast and mm. God, what a perfect <laughs> representation of Theo. It was it was uh, one of the rare perfect moments in my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so uh I oh, so I guess I had seen her uh once at AWP in undergrad and then later in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I think uh when she was there in Arizona her book Mad Adam was new. I think that okay. was her newest thing. Mm-hmm. And um both times I saw her speak, I was like, oh, wonderful. This is great. She's so charming and funny mm-hmm. and uh, smart. And um, part of her introduction at the Arizona event was them saying that the Mad Adam trilogy, which is Oryx and Crake, The Year mm-hmm. of the Flood, and Mad Adam, 
was being adapted into an HBO series. Oh, okay. And I and and at the time, Game of Thrones was like all the rage. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I thought like, oh, cool opportunity. Like I never read the Game of Thrones books, and that's an HBO series that I'm watching along with everyone else. And but I'm not part of the conversation about how it's different from the books. And I'm saying, okay, I'll read more Margaret Atwood. It's only three books. I'll be like, okay, I'll read these three books before the HBO series comes along. Mm -hmm. That HBO series has never come along. Mm -hmm. So I just read those three books. Um, And then uh, now I've read The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments. And that's my whole uh, exposure. And that's my whole history with Margaret Atwood. Um, Now, transitioning into talking about the TV series, Mm -hmm. um, now we will do, since since I've just offered up my baseline for Margaret Atwood, the author, I will hand it over to you for a baseline. What what is your baseline with The Handmaid's Tale uh, TV series and, and, of course, what it's based on? So I was given The Handmaid's Tale by a fiction professor at Susquehanna University when I was at writing camp when I was 17. Ah. This is a fiction professor who I'm sure, if you know anything, you can figure out who he is, but Mm. I will not give him the power of a name. Ah. (laughs) And uh, he is a complicated figure in my life in that Uh uh, he sucks for the most part, but had a lot Mm -hmm. of power when we were at Susquehanna and before. And Mm he... um, it was sort of incredible that he bought me this book. Yeah. The way that he treated literature and his sort of um white male, straight white male, straight cis white male perspective on things and what he was interested in, what he allowed to be uh how to say this, what he allowed to be praised in his classes and what he didn't. The mm-hmm. fact that he was like this is a book that you're going to like and I think mm-hmm. it's really good. Yeah. Um I think says something. Yeah. Um considering and I read it uh, that summer, like as soon as I got back from writing camp. Mm-hmm. And then um, I read the only book I could get from the library, which was um, Cat's Eye. Yes. And I liked Cat's Eye a lot, but I it was long. Okay. Um, I want to say it was like maybe th- 300 pages. You know, it was just like, you know, Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale is pretty short. And I want to say Cat's Eye was like twice as long or something. And okay. there was a part in the middle where I thought, this is kind of slow for me. Yeah. And I remember Googling, which was at the time, like, not something I – was, like, the first time I did this, I, like, Googled reviews of it. Oh. And found a review that was, like, the, like, last sort of third of it is kind of slow. And I was, like, mm. oh, cool. Somebody yeah. else thinks this. That's smart. Yeah, that's very cool. And then – um, but I liked that book a lot. But it was mm. – um, I did think – I was, like, eh. And then freshman year for my grammar class, I wrote – I read a third book by her and then wrote my final paper. I read the Penelope ad. Yeah. Oh. Huh. Did you read that too? Actually, you know what? Yeah. No, I think I've I think I've just heard of it and I think I might have referenced it in a paper or two, mm-hmm. but I don't think I ever read it. So the Penelope ad is about um, the uh, Iliad. Mm-hmm. From the um, perspective of Penelope, I think you mean the Odyssey. The Odyssey, but it has the Ead in there for, because of. Let me look yeah. really quick. I have it like right here. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a okay. Yes. I mean, she wouldn't call it the Penelope E. Yes, 
It's called the, yes, it's uh, Penelope reminiscing about the events of the Odyssey. Yeah. She's and the one who is, uh, she has a lot of suitors because her husband is away. Yes, she keeps like weaving and unweaving She's like, I'll, I'll pick a new husband once I finish this tapestry and she keeps undoing it every yeah. night when they're asleep. <laughs> yeah. And I read that and thought, God, this is so sloppy. <laughs> and and mm. I just want to say all of these, I've reread The Handmaid's Tale since a couple of times, but okay. um, otherwise these opinions are definitely um, focused on me as like a ni- 17, 18, 19 yeah. year old. Um, and so my paper was basically arguing that, um, her sentence structure had gotten looser and less precise as she got older. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, compare these two books in size. You yeah. Know. And that Clear. was also, I think, the first time that I thought and the more talked- power she got, the lazier she got. And we've talked on this podcast before, specifically, we were talking about film directors, but we've talked on this podcast before about how. The more success you have, the more resources you have, and the fewer limitations you have, exactly. and the fewer people you have telling you no, or this could be better. Yes. And so a lot of times, you know, not your best work is created later in your career if you mm-hmm. have a successful career. Yeah. So that that was that was my sort of main takeaway. Kenny had not read. I really like The Handmaid's Tale a lot. I remember mm-hmm. feeling very jarred by it. Yeah. Um, it felt very uh, claustrophobic to me uh-huh. um, in a way that I thought was really good. And then yeah. um, I made Kenny read it before we started watching the TV show. Um, and I, I do want to tell you very briefly my TV show interaction just as a segue into you then talking more about it. Just real quick before you yes. do that, because we're still talking about Margaret Atwood and we may or may not ever circle back to that. Oh, yes. So before, oh, I, we will. <laughs> bef- well, before we get into the tv show i just want to say in case there is not another good opportunity later uh-huh. my sort of superficial but overall take on reading margaret atwood when i read margaret atwood uh, or when i think of reading margaret atwood after reading handmaid's tale and testaments mm-hmm. and the or and the mad adam trilogy um, which is like, it's all like speculative fiction, right? Cat's Eye is the outlier. That's like yeah, that's semi-autobiographical. Yeah. But reading her speculative fiction, like the main thing that rises to my brain, the main thing I think of is clumsy portmanteaus. Oh, uh-huh. She loves to create portmanteaus. And they almost always read to me like they're either like over thought or or like undercooked uh-huh so that they just stand out as like i don't think that anyone would really like i don't think that this would ever take uh-huh. in the world you know like in the real world mm-hmm. like um the like the best example in the world of the handmaid's tale is the word participation oh i don't remember that so clearly uh- it didn't take with me either Yes, can you can you extrapolate or or recall what a participation is? Is that when all the handmaids have to like stone somebody? Yes, kill someone. Yes, yeah. rip rip them apart. It is it is a participatory execution? Yes. Um, and the the main example that I think of from the Mad Adam trilogy is there's this brand called Hapakuppa. Uh huh. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's H A P P I. C U P P A. 
Hapakuppa. And it's like that world's Starbucks. Oh. But also sort of like Monsanto. Uh-huh. It's and, a corporate it's a corporation. Yes. And I just couldn't re I just couldn't take the word Hapakuppa seriously reading yeah. the book. I was like, mm, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, and I haven't read that book, maybe she was trying to, like, pick something that was particularly ridiculous to sort of, like, have that as, because she's very much about contrast, right? Yeah. So she might have wanted you to not be able to take that name seriously because the corporation itself is, like, so, I'm assuming evil or something. Maybe. But, I like, compare that to, like, what I think is, like, a really good example Uh of, like, putting a realistic face on an evil corporation which is like um, the Umbrella Corporation. Oh yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. It's like it's like yeah, you can believe that that sounds like a thing that exists, mm-hmm. and it sounds innocuous, and it sounds like safety and and comfort and something good, and it and it's a corporation, and it's mm-hmm. actually something you know that causes a lot of harm. Um, Half a cup, I just like my mind just like stumbles over. Yeah, it. and I'm not full. I'm by no means fully defending it. I was just uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah suggesting because yeah. I also haven't read the the books. Uh, yeah. Um. Um. So, do you want to uh, get into yes. your TV watching? So it's very brief, which is that um, you know, as we'll be talking about soon, the show started coming out right after the election. Yeah, 2017. And um, I was excited to watch it. I like Elizabeth Moss. I think she's mm-hmm. really pretty. Um, Kenny has watched all of Mad you, Men. What? You, you don't look unlike her. What? You do not look dissimilar to Elizabeth Moss. You think I look like Elizabeth Moss? I'm just saying it feels a little <gasps> bit like you're paying yourself a compliment. Oh, my God. <laughs> when you say that she's really pretty when, like, you you look like... Elizabeth Moss, Julia Stiles, you you look you you have. I, you, people of, used to say I look like uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, K- Kirsten Dunst. D- oh yeah, Dun- she's another one. We're we're describing celebrities with with uh, round white faces, especially right? when I was blonde. Is the other thing I used uh-huh. to be very blonde when I was a kid. Right there, there's a collection of women that I would a Venn diagram. I would say that I don't think includes anyone except Elizabeth Moss. Uh, of women where it's like Elizabeth Moss, um, uh, who's Francis Ha? Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig. Um, uh, uh, Rose from Titanic. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. What is her name? Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. All of those women, like Elizabeth. Okay. So Elizabeth Moss, Kate Winslet, Greta Gerwig are mm-hmm. all, I just think like beautiful in a way that like I, if I were to actually meet them, I feel like I'm not be able. I wouldn't be able to breathe. Okay. Um, and I sort of group them together as like, oh, I think that this person looks pretty because she looks like this person who looks like this. I mean, it all goes back to Kate mm-hmm. Winslet, if we're being honest. But interesting. Um. Anyway, so, uh, I was yeah. Kenny liked her from Mad Men. I had seen. I've seen bits and pieces of Mad Men when Kenny was watching it. Mm-hmm. Um. And we watched it and uh, it was like such a dark time. Like there were other things yeah. happening besides the fact that the election had just happened, um, though that was a big part of it. There was also um, mm-hmm. like some health issues and with Elliot and his family issues. 
And we mm-hmm. watched some episodes and then I said, I, I, we both said we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, we're too sad already. Yeah. And I then started watching it again, sort of like in a bingey fashion, which I think is actually for me a little bit less emotional. Yeah. Um, uh, to prepare for this, for this episode. And, uh, I thought that I had watched like five episodes. I thought I had watched like half the season. Mm-hmm. We watched three episodes, Will. That's a difference. <laughs> That's a significant difference. Like, I thought I was, like, fully halfway through the season, and we had watched the pilot and mm-hmm. then two episodes, which is, I mean, nothing. But the, yeah. that's the sort of, like, that's how grueling it was to watch the show. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, and then I've I've watched now through season two, I think I watched the last episode I got through episode nine. Okay, so you're on season two, episode nine. And then you had also asked me, are there any episodes that I should jump ahead and make time to watch before we record the podcast? Yes. And I recommended what I think is hands down the most bonkers episode of the show so far. That episode is super bonkers. Yeah, I was like... So you did watch it? We did. I watched it with Kenny, actually, who has not watched anything except for the first three episodes. And he's read the book. That's great. Um, so we'll get into that later. Um, but yes, to reiterate, we are recording this in late October 2019. The show is not over. It's going to continue. Um, but we're at a moment where in the past three years, since 2017, there have been three seasons mm-hmm. uh, of the show so far. Um, the first season is 10 episodes long. And it covers... From start to finish, the book, The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Uh, Then they kept making the show and uh, creating an original story for Mm -hmm. the characters and the world. And that's gone on for two more seasons so far and will continue. And seasons two and three are each 13 episodes long Mm -hmm. as opposed to the first season's 10. And Uh, it's not a short show either. It's not like. No. It's it's. It's not a 40 minute show because it's, it's, a, it's it, on Hulu and so they don't have to make it fit into like TV time. It's a Hulu original. Um, there are commercial breaks unless you pay to not have them. And, uh, yeah, it is not, uh, formatted for a, uh, broadcast television time slot. Um, it's more like HBO. Yeah. Um, TV time broadcast yeah. television time slot. Yeah. Those are the words. Well, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm I, I was just making fun of myself. I'm a lay person too. I, I uh, anyway, uh, yeah. It's it's uh, an hour long drama, and it and it really is an hour long. Sometimes more than an hour long, um, especially when you get into like finales, season mm-hmm. finales. Uh, they go they go wild. Um, so just real quick, compare it to um, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Um. Game of Thrones was uh, five books with the understanding that it would eventually be seven. Um, and they started the TV series and they were adapting the books. Um, basically, one season of the TV show per book. Um, it's for HBO so they can make the episodes basically as long as they want. Although the creators of Game of Thrones who had never made a TV show uh, like Game of Thrones before 
discovered that there was a minimum time length for the episodes in season one mm-hmm. because they uh, submitted after editing, they submitted episodes that were shorter than 50 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And HBO was like, no, that's too short. You have to make your show at least 50 minutes long. Wow. And so they wrote and shot extra scenes to pad out uh, episodes in season one of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, the series caught up to the book series and they started writing, uh, you know, uh, a story beyond the books and a with lot input. of people with input from George R. R. Martin, um, in, in much the same way that Margaret Atwood's, uh, presence is sort of looming over the Hulu show, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and, uh, a lot of people were, you know, upset with the past, the last two seasons of Game of Thrones or the last three seasons, I guess. And, um, they had a certain, uh, advantage on HBO that, uh, they were allowed to, uh, take more time in between seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason being they said, well, the show, is set in wintertime now. And so we have to shoot during wintertime. <laughs> and so you need to give us uh, an extra year to write and produce um, about half the number of episodes we uh, used to do. <laughs> right. Cause it's um, only like ver- six or seven episodes at the end, right? Yeah. A season. Um, I mean. So yeah, very conveniently <laughs> they had um, extra time to do uh, less content. Um, and, uh, it's kind of the opposite. It, 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 it's sort of like uh, the handmaid's tale is like that, but like compressed and also some things are reversed. So mm-hmm. like compressed because like there's only one book and they got through it in one season. So from after one year, they're, they're in the woods, you mm-hmm. know, alone by themselves, making it up as they go. Also, they lengthen the season rather than shortening it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do not take any time off. Um, oh, okay. There, it, it's, it, 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 there's been a season per year, 2017, mm-hmm. 2018, 2019. Um, the only difference being, I think, seasons one and two premiered in April. And season three, excuse me, premiered in uh, June. Fittingly enough, uh, premiered in June. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, this so I I want to put out sort of two uh, sort of thesis uh, statements about mm-hmm. what is uh, going wrong with this show, mm-hmm. and since um, I'm already talking about like the macro structure of the seasons and when they've come out, I'll just lay out my first thesis statement is the show feels like it is being made in a hurry. Mm-hmm. It feels like the scripts are first drafts and it feels like they do not have the time or the money to do a lot of takes. Uh-huh. They just get it and they move on. Mm-hmm. And so if you are watching closely, it, it looks a little shoddy and a little sloppy mm-hmm. and not very well made. Mm-hmm. My other thesis statement going back to season one is now having read The Handmaid's Tale, I would raise the question 
and I'll raise it to you and see if you have the same answer that I do. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the main challenge of adapting The Handmaid's Tale to the screen? I mean, I think the main challenge, which is my main criticism, is that... Mm-hmm. Do you remember the word I used to describe how The Handmaid's Tale made me feel? Claustrophobic? Yes. Yeah. Part of the strength of the book, and I just want to say, too, I don't think that the book is without criticism. I think that, you know, one could be critical of the book. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that it's a good book, and I like it a lot. Um, yeah. And I think it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of that power comes from the narrow focus um, of it being all from um, Offred or June's eyes. And I think it, and I think it comes from the um I think it comes from how there's so little information mm-hmm. that you sort of have to piece together and because of that things feel they feel so much dire and mm-hmm. they also feel significantly less sloppy. Can I can I give you an example of this? Please do. In the book, uh there's two things with with her family. So one, you actually only learn her name is June through um, deduction. Can I? Yeah. Can I pause here? Yes. I'd like to read you an excerpt from the new introduction oh. by the author Margaret Atwood. Uh huh. Why do we never learn the real name of the central character? I have often been asked. Because I reply, so many people throughout history have had their names changed or have simply disappeared from view. Some have deduced that Offred's real name is June, since of all the names whispered among the handmaids in the gymnasium slash dormitory, yes. June is the only one that never appears again. Mm-hmm. That was not my original thought. Oh, what but, a bitch. <laughs> but it fits, so readers are welcome to it if they wish. I That's hate that. That, that makes me so mad. So, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) But, 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 can I just point out? Yes. You may not remember, but how does season one, episode one of the show end? Doesn't she say, my name is June? Yes. She lists the real names of all the characters who are not given real names in the book, Uh ending with herself. And she says, my name is June. I will say... That may be the one thing that the show did better than the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's certainly different. Um, so there's that. And then the other sort of familial examples I'll give here is like in the book, Luke is dead. Done. 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 No hope. He's not a refugee. He didn't make it out. Like he is certainly dead. And even if he's not dead, she is never seeing him again. Uh, okay. That is. Or you know what? You're never going to know. You you haven't read the testaments. In the book, uh-huh. not including the testaments, because I'm calling bullshit on that, because I think that she's being influenced by the TV show. It absolutely I would love is, to talk about that. It is absolutely made to be clear that she is never going to see Luke again. Uh-huh. There's no mention of it, there's no and even if let's say he is alive somehow, she does not connect with him in the book. So she does not get any hope from that interaction. Okay. And then secondly, uh, with Hannah, she never- Her daughter from before. Her daughter with Luke. Mm -hmm. Hannah, she sees in a moment and it's in a photograph, which is repeated, I think, in the second season at one point. Um, 
The it fo- definitely it definitely happened on the show. I don't remember the photograph if it was part season specifically. One or two. Yeah. The in the show, uh, 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 Serena drives her to see her from a car window. That happens later. I'm pretty sure she sees a photograph in the show, but I don't have a photographic memory. The the photograph definitely comes second because I remember. Oh, I remember because that just I just saw that. The car thing is a threat. The car thing is a threat, right? It's not a comfort thing, but that's the first time that she sees Hannah, and that's sloppy. And okay, this is my problem, which is that the book allows for this concision, whereas like in the world of the book. She never would have been so bold as to take mm-hmm. her that close to her child where mm-hmm. she could have done anything. Yeah. Um, and th- this is, uh, we're not going to get too far into this, but in, uh, the Hulu adaptation, same situation of 112263, which is the Stephen King book about the dude going back in time to try to kill JF or to try to kill the dude who killed JFK. Yeah. That character is so in the books is so precise with what he does mm-hmm. because he knows that he could screw everything up yeah so when in the tv show james franco goes back in time and is like i guess i'll try to call my dad from a payphone," it's yeah. like you idiot you would never this character never would have done this yeah but it's because they need they need that for the tv but i think that it makes it bad and i would like to point out also that the car scene where uh she's shown as a threat, hey, they're outside the car. You can see from inside the car, there's your daughter. Mm-hmm. She's safe now. It would be a shame if anything happened to her. Mm-hmm. That is one of uh, one of multiple things I can think of on The Handmaid's Tale show that was done first by Breaking Bad. Oh, really? There's a scene in Breaking Bad, spoiler alert, where the Nazis who are holding Jesse take him in a car to see a mother and child who he has a connection to and Mm -hmm. they kill the mother, but they don't kill the child. And they're like, the child's alive and he's going to stay that way for now. Uh Um, So uh, it's very similar. Um, I'm not saying plagiarism, but yeah, uh I am saying I've kind of seen it before. Yeah. Okay. um, But that's, that's, that's my biggest overarching criticism is the TV show is, so long that it just gets sloppy. Yes. Okay. So it. So so there's a there's a post season one problem, which is there's no more material to adapt, mm-hmm. and this person's story does not lend itself to being extended for this long in this way. Mm-hmm. There's a from the start problem or maybe not a problem but a real challenge that you got close to articulating but i'm going to expand on what you said and the point is that it's hard to adapt the handmaid's tale for the screen first of all because the book is from offred's perspective yes and it's first person and no movie or tv show can do that Mm mm-hmm because there's always going to be the camera and uh, while occasionally, you know, the camera will take the point of view of a character, like mm-hmm. literally it's supposed to be as if you're seeing through their eyes. Basically, the camera is like... <laughs> like in the episode you made me watch. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. cru- crucially. Um, basically, the 
basically the camera is like a god's eye point of view. Mm-hmm. It's like the camera sees what mm-hmm. the what the filmmakers want you to see, and like it's like an omniscient narrator. Mm-hmm. But not only is the book written in first person, but it's it's not narrated in the way that the show is narrated. Mm-hmm. The, the power of the book is that in the fictional world of the book, the book is a document. Yes, which is part of, I think, what makes the ending of it so jarring and what was so effective to me as a youth. Its power is in its similarity to the diary of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. It, it is an on-the-ground, like, testimony of, like, a victim who is, like, embedded in this, you know, global sort of horrifying situation. Yeah. Um, so no show can do that. Mm-hmm. And if they tried to do that, it wouldn't be this show. Mm-hmm. Because the show, for example, has plenty of scenes that Elizabeth Moss is not in. Mm -hmm. So even if you could, like, you could try to make the case that, like, she's the main character, she might be recalling everything, her narration might be her memories of things, it might be from her perspective, quote unquote, even though the camera is seeing things. Mm Mm-hmm. There are scenes that she's not there for, yeah. that she couldn't possibly recall. Mm-hmm. Also, in addition to that, her narration, how would how would you characterize her her narration on the show? Um, it's Where is it where is it coming from? Yeah, it's it definitely mm, I don't know the words. She's like she's talking over the film. She definitely is like talk like quote unquote talking to herself, but the idea is that there is some sort of like audience, much like if you, I, I would say actually, it's sort of like when you write to a diary and there's this audience that isn't actually there and yet you're still directing the thoughts at a thing, even though it's maybe hypothetically no one will ever read it. Am I making sense? I think so. I think the best, I think the, I think you can make the strongest case for the, the voiceover in the show is an inner monologue. Yes. And it's happening more or less concurrently mm-hmm. with the events as we're seeing them happen. It has no diegetic source. Yes. Like we've talked about diegetic and non-diegetic voiceover. Mm-hmm. We talked about Iron Man 3, how all of a sudden Tony Stark is doing voiceover. This has never happened before. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, he's talking to Bruce Banner. And yeah. the whole thing has been a one-sided conversation. Mm-hmm. And so it has a diegetic source. That's... I don't think that's ever going to happen on The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. I think it's just inner monologue. And the the best piece of evidence I think I have for this case is there's an episode where I think it is mid-season two. In season two, she sort of escapes. Mm-hmm. And then she, she starts. Is, she starts trying. She gets. She escapes from the house, but doesn't get out of Gilead. She doesn't escape Gilead, but she is escaping, and she's away, and she's away from people, and then she gets captured, and she gets brought back, mm-hmm. and that causes a sort of psychological break in her, 
where she like has to, you know, compartmentalize to the point of like basically like losing herself. Yeah. To her circumstances. And an episode ends with, as most episodes do, a close up of her. Mm hmm. But not only is this a close-up of her, but it's a very special close-up of her in which she looks directly into the camera lens. Mm -hmm. And her voiceover is her repeatedly saying, we've been sent good weather. We've been sent good weather. Uh So it's like, oh, okay. The narration must be her inner monologue in the present moment. Mm -hmm. Because in the present moment, she's had this psychological break. That means that in order to survive, she just has to do the handmade performance. And that's her. Yeah. And and her, you know, humanity is like, you know, stored away Mm -hmm. in the unconscious mind where, you know, she can't like suffer from, you know, uh, having everything taken away from her. Mm -hmm. So, um that's that's why the show is never going to it's never going to have the best quality of the book yes which is that you read the book and it's like reading the diary of Anne frank and it and it also really does feel like you have those wings on uh-huh like you the i mean that's i think partially what i mean when i say claustrophobic like mm-hmm. i mean offred goes through i mean still does wild things but everything she does that feels wild feels like everything that she does that breaks the pattern feels mm-hmm. so dangerous, so high stakes. Whereas in the show, after a while, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you've gotten away with a lot of shit at this point, right? And and getting away with a lot of shit is basically that's the main criticism that I see of the show. Mm-hmm. So at some point around season two of the show, I started a Twitter account um, called The Handmaid's Takes. It's at Handmaid's Take uh, on Twitter. Well, how did you not um, tell this to me before now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just do these things sometimes and I think it would be funnier if I just did it privately <laughs> uh, and just see if it catches on. But um, so I've, I've, I've crafted a few original tweets, but mostly – I just retweet what people are saying about The Handmaid's Tale uh-huh. and specifically things that make me laugh uh, that people are saying about it. And so I see a lot of like reactions to the show. And the main like negative reaction that I've seen is um, the show can only go on this way because June has plot armor. What's that mean? Plot armor. You're familiar with TV tropes. Yes. One of one of the most hideous corners of the internet. TV tropes. Uh-huh. And plot armor is like a story trope that's like, well, there will never be any serious consequences for this character uh-huh. because it's so important to the plot that they go on living and they be like okay that they survive yes so they have plot armor that's keeping them alive so like game of thrones is a show where like it seems like anyone can die sean bean died in season one so it's like ooh, very special show with no plot armor but like if anyone has plot armor it's like probably Tyrion. Uh he like survives like multiple like battles where he's like on the ground um even though he's not a fighter that's how he survives and, he plays dead well he literally just gets knocked out but doesn't get killed yeah 
in one battle and then and so like he has plot armor like he's or seems it's sort like- of like it's sort of like buffy like uh mm-hmm. the show is called buffy the vampire slayer and so she dies but she comes yeah. back twice <laughs> yeah that's yeah there, there are more. Yeah, there are better reasons for that, though. Sure. So, what I want to say about the plot armor of the Handmaid's Tale is that, like, people are really on to something, and they're right when they mm-hmm. say that June has plot armor. But I feel like that is just the beginning of it. Okay. Like, to yeah. Call to call it plot armor is to just like put it in this like little box where it's like other shows are like this. Like mm-hmm. some characters just have plot armor and it's like a failing of some stories. Yeah. Uh, like like the hobbits in Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. Like they they just miraculously survive everything. Oh yeah, uh um, fam- famously from Matt Bell's uh yes. talk uh hobbit helmets about right. hobbit Hob- helmets. Yes. Hobbits plot need armor- helmets. Pl- hobbit helmets are an example of plot armor. Yes. Um, so, uh, in The Handmaid's Tale, like, that is true, but also it doesn't encapsulate what I think is, like, uniquely, like, egregious about, like, this example of yeah. it. It's like, it's like, it is, it goes beyond suspension, suspension yes. of disbelief. Yes. Like, plot armor is like, okay. Maybe they should have died by now, but they've got plot armor and I can suspend my disbelief and enjoy the show. This is like, it's beyond suspension of disbelief that June has done everything that she's done. And they haven't killed her or sent her to the colonies where she died. Her circumstances like basically haven't changed. Yeah. Um, And and yeah, she's not punished in any um, uh, long lasting way. Like even, even death just or the fact imprisonment. That she, she's punished, certainly, but yeah. only in the routine ways. <laughs> even if she, even just the fact that she didn't get in the episode where she, you think she's about to escape and then the plane gets shot up in season two. Okay. She's in that little biplane. Do you know what I'm talking about? I kind of remember it. So she's in this little biplane with a dude who I think is a driver who's gay. Mm-hmm. And, okay. um, they come in and they kill the the pilot and then so there's they're not so she's not escaping now because like the plane mm-hmm. will not take off. Yeah. And then they shoot they're shooting up the plane and right. the other dude, the driver, dies. Right. And like the fact that like she just didn't get nicked by a bullet. Right. Yeah, yeah it's just coincidence. Thank you for following at Handmaid's Take, which I just got a notification for. Will I have run into this before when I've been searching for stuff. Really? Yes. Oh, good. I was like, I was like, wait a second. And then I was looking at it and I was like, oh my God, I've looked at this before. Okay. <laughs> Have, can you, uh, let's just t- take a, take a moment while, since we're talking about, um, my Twitter account. Um, let's just take this moment to acknowledge some things, um, that I've highlighted there. So are you, are you looking at my profile, the handmaid's take profile? Yes. Okay. Could you describe the profile picture of the account? Yes, it is Elizabeth Moss with uh I'm assuming a director some probably another producer of the okay. show. And they are holding awards, Emmy awards. And there are handmaids standing behind them. Uh-huh. In dress, uh, in dress and costume. Yes. Yes, people women in handmaids costumes. Yes. So they are showing off their Emmy awards. And they're flanked by 
uh, unsmiling, seemingly in character. Yes. Uh, handmaids. Yes. Um, you've you've described the the picture very well. How would you describe your reaction to that picture? Uh, it's kind of missing the point. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like a friend of mine looked at it and went like, "That looks really good." Like, how did you do that? Uh! And I went like, "Oh no, no, this is a real undoctored photograph." Like, I did. I <laughs> they took this photo. <laughs> And they thought it was a good idea. Someone thought it was yeah, a good yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, how would you... Now, please describe the banner image for uh, The Handmaid's Takes uh, Twitter account. It's those fucking wines. <laughs> so it's... Okay. So, so okay. So it's three bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, the middle one, it's the two bottles on the edges have the sort of uh, very straight sides that quickly go into the, the spout. And then mm-hmm. the middle one has the straight sides about halfway up, and then it's a gentle slope. And mm-hmm. it's got um, sort of silhouettes without actual facial features of uh, Off Glen, Offred, and Serena Joy. Um, and the Off Glen is red, the Offred is a darker red, and then the Serena Joy is a blue, and it's a white wine. And these, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, they put out these promotional wines, and then people were like, wait, what the actual fuck? <laughs> Yeah. So here's something that we'll link to in the show notes. I'm looking at a people.com story. The headline is Handmaid's Tale Wines Pulled After One Day Amidst Fierce Backlash Over Rape-Themed Marketing. <laughs> Fans are not happy with The Handmaid's Tale's latest marketing stunt. Rape-themed marketing. <laughs> by Madison Roberts, July 12th, 2018. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. So... so they when i when we're talking about they this is this is branded content yes the the wines are or were or would have been an actual tie into the show yeah like not just like somebody made them like this is not just like a fan on etsy yeah like i'm this a, is, i'm a gang made like, game of thrones beers in the same yes. way mhm um so let me see if i can find a uh, description okay here we go uh, quote, Alfred must rely on the one weapon she has left to stay in control, her feminine wiles. The description continues. This French Pinot Noir is similarly seductive. It's dark berry <laughs> fruit and cassis aromatics so beguiling it seems almost forbidden to taste. But it's useless to resist <laughs> the wine. Are you fucking kidding smooth me? Smooth and appealingly earthy profile. So you may as well give in. Nolite te So you may as well give in. Indeed. Will have my eyes ever been wider? No. <laughs> so this this gaff is is in. I think it's not just a one off. Yes, I this, yes, I see what you're this, saying. This gaff is indicative of. Like the whole culture around the show, Mm -hmm. which is like the commercialization of something that, while fictional, is supposed to be taken very seriously. Yes. Like deathly seriously. Because it's like an allegory. Is -hmm. that the right word? It's an allegory to very real life things that are happening. Right. And Margaret Atwood has been very clear and spoken with what I think is a lot of pride uh, about the fact that 
Um, nothing was allowed to go into the Handmaid's Tale that hasn't actually happened somewhere at some time mm-hmm. uh, on Earth. Um, and the same is supposed to be true of the show. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yes. Um, so that's that's another, like, perhaps you could make the case insurmountable challenge uh-huh. to the, the, the notion of adapting uh this book to the screen yeah like it in i think literature if it's not the only medium that you can get away with this then it is at least the foremost medium Mm -hmm. in which you can get away with um selling something that seems too serious to be for sale Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm and then once you get into movies and television, it's like, oh, I, under almost all circumstances, I cannot consume this media without being advertised to by third parties. Yeah. Like, I can't go to the movies without seeing an ad from my local orthodontist. And I can't watch a television show without seeing, you know, Kylie Jenner, um, try to save the world with a Pepsi yeah. or something. From so, from systematic rate and systemic racism. <laughs> right. So, um, so, so I have a note on this, th- by yeah, the way. Go ahead. Cause I'm stumbling. So go ahead. Um, I, I wanted to bring up another show that I watched, um, right after the election where a similar thing happened for okay. me, which was, um, the walking dead. Interesting. And I have not, watched all of the walking dead kenny has um this is another show that i've sort of dipped in and out of but i was on um, maternity leave and when i was Mm -hmm. on maternity leave we bought um for the olympics um playstation view which was like a sort of like cable-y type thing right because Mm -hmm. when i thought i thought i was gonna read so many books on maternity leave and like it's impossible to hold a book (laughs) like it's impossible but you can Uh sit very still with a baby and have the tv on so that's what i did Right. And um, because of that, we could watch The Walking Dead as it came out. So uh-huh. I watched the first episode of season seven. Are you familiar at all with The Walking Dead? Do you mind if I give spoilers for this? Please give spoilers. I watched a lot of it, but I can't remember when I stopped. Okay. so I can tell you what happened when I stopped, but I can't tell you what number of season it was. Did you get into the Negan stuff? No, I stopped just before that. So Negan is this sort of like tyrannical dude and he's got, I mean, not to get too much into it. He has this, he, he has power that feels unyielding. Like you, like, it seems like it's going to be impossible for them to overtake him. He's the guy with the baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire. He's got a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire wire called Lucille. And, um, he, uh, the way that the season starts, which had been, um, had been prefaced as a cliffhanger was that he was going to mm-hmm. kill somebody. And so every, yeah. so this episode is all of the main cast minus like Carol and another person, mm-hmm. um, on their knees, on their knees mm-hmm. in yeah. the dark in the woods with yeah. Negan just pacing around deciding who he's going to kill. Yeah. And then he eventually right. kills Glenn, Glenn, which is what happened in the, um, comic book series. 
Yeah. So people were sort of expecting that. But first yeah. he kills Abraham, which people were not expecting. People thought he was okay. only going to kill one person, but ah. surprise, he kills two people. And it's not mm-hmm. a quick death. You see yeah. all of it. Uh-huh. And so I remember reading, and it was like maybe the worst hour of television I've ever watched in my life. Yeah. Like, I mean, the I, cruelest. Yeah. And may I say that I have not seen this episode, but I have seen it bafflingly parodied on SNL. Yeah. When Dave, <laughs> Dave Chappelle, Chappelle hosted, and the thing of the sketch was... It was all of his characters. What, what if that scene, but with the characters he played on Chappelle's show? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are two things. Uh huh. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a, that I think is. I don't watch a lot of SNL, but I think that that is the formula for an SNL sketch. <laughs> what if there were two different things, but together? You know, together? Yeah. Um, Funny stuff. I really like SNL, by the way. But <laughs> today, 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 yeah. today. We, we don't, I, I was saying to Sarah, I was saying our devotee of the pod, I was like, you know what? It just makes me feel like I really like Keenan Thompson and it just makes me feel like mm. I'm hanging out with friends. I like would we're watch doing Kenan, something. I would happily watch the Keenan Thompson show. <laughs> well, and he has a show. Okay. We're getting off track. Um, this art, I read an article. I couldn't find the exact article that I read when this first episode came out, but this was close enough where basically they were saying, um, the walking dead is now asking too much of its audience and yeah. at the end it says it's increasingly and difficult it says the um negan's game of eeny meeny miny mo until that fatal thwack confirmed that the walking dead isn't taking its viewers by the hand so much as jerking us around it's increasingly difficult to escape the idea that this show that this is a show that gets off on torturing its audience mm-hmm. and i rem- and so i bring this up because with um with the handmaid's tale it starts to feel like the show is yes very very serious as you're saying Mm -hmm. but because of this aspect of sloppiness that i've brought up and that you've brought up in a different way um it starts to feel like it's more so just trying to like really fuck with us in a way Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel meaningful it just feels like uh like shock and like torture porn is a is a phrase Yes. That I may or may and not I, be using correctly. And I was I was trying to make the point that uh and I I, I don't know if I'm gonna articulate this very well. Maybe I've underbaked this idea, but mm. but but basically the culture around the show, which is cre- which is created and cultivated not just by fans, but 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 by people associated with the show. Mm-hmm people making the show the culture is is one of like okay like they can really like put their foot in their mouth trying to like like most television shows not most i what i actually mean to say is a lot of mainstream Mm -hmm. popular Mm -hmm. television shows and uh movies would have merchandise yes but they are making a serious show Mm -hmm. And so it would look very gauche mm-hmm. for them to make merchandise. Yeah. So they are in a position where like anyone else, any anyone ripping them off can make the Handmaid's Tale costumes mm-hmm. that are available right now, not as you're hearing this, but as we're recording it at your local Halloween store. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't 
um, make any merchandise because, and this is this is the core problem. Maybe they shouldn't be making the show in the first place. Yeah, because just the the show itself is like a commercial endeavor. Yeah, but like the subject matter, like we are expected to take it so seriously mm-hmm. that it shouldn't be a tv show (laughs) i i mean i think my sort of thesis here because i i'm pretty much on board with you for this i was a little bit afraid that you were going to say that you thought the book was terrible which you have not said no 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 the the book is great (laughs) but that said um uh my main criticism my main thesis here is that this should have been a mini series like oh yeah if the brit if the brits had done it and they had made it a mini series i think that they could have you know, it still would have had to be different. And you know I'm very forgiving to adaptations, as we've talked about. But I think that they yeah. could have done something with the impact that you're describing. Yeah. And yeah, they, they – but yeah, but the fact that they're they're still going is a problem. And part of my thesis that, uh, that, that they are, you know, in the woods, in the dark, making up as they go, and they don't have – enough time and resources to do it well. Mm-hmm. Part part of my thesis is that I think that they are trapped by their success. Yes, absolutely. I do, I do not think that there was any plan for the future of the show. Mm-hmm. I think it was just let's adapt this book. Mm-hmm. And then it was so successful that they decided can't hurt that badly to keep going yeah um and uh it's gonna and it keeps going Mm -hmm. because and and i should i want to take this moment to say there haven't maybe there haven't been that many episodes of the podcast like this one because i don't usually spend a lot of my time on things that you hate (laughs) Yeah, consuming media <laughs> that I think is bad. Yeah, I think yeah. Is like really, it's just like a once in a while, like, hey, this, I bet this Netflix original movie, like Tall Girl or Secret Obsession uh-huh. or Martin Scorsese's The Irishman will be like really funny to watch. Yeah. Um, because, you know, to like in a Mystery Science Theater 3000 yeah. kind of a way. But like TV shows are like long <laughs> and life is so short. Yeah. And, so, and it's not like um, anybody's making you watch this. It's not like no, I'm assuming no, not, Dana is like, it's not like Dana's coming to you and is being like, no, this is my favorite show. We are going no. to watch it together. <laughs> no, it is. It is not that at all. Dana and I uh, dunk on the show together. Yes. And it is one of the few shows that I watch because I want to see it fail i just want to see what happens Mm -hmm. and it is a lot of fun to dunk on yeah and it's so much fun that i made that that twitter account Mm -hmm. um so let's dunk on it some more i just i want to say a couple of other sort of big picture sort of things Uh and then i really want to get into i have some notes where i'm going to really pick some nits as uh uh, margaret atwood would say Uh Um, so, so the other sort of biggest picture thing I want to point out is, um, so one of the things that I was surprised by reading the book after having seen the three seasons of the television show Mm -hmm. is the commander and his wife, um, they're old. Yes. This is one of my criticisms. So when they cast the commander and Serena Joy for the show... They made them young and sexy. So sexy. 
Like, don't make, don't, don't make a sexy rapist. So. <laughs> this is one of my hugest problems because, and, is, and, and also because, yeah. also because it's like, it's even more offensive that they think that they're, that, that she's going to get pregnant this way, right? It's not just that mm. men are infertile. Like in the book, it's like they are going through this process where these dudes are old and probably wouldn't have been that fertile to begin with. Right. So. Let's say a few things. One, so I've already articulated some of the big challenges that you have trying to adapt this book to the screen. Mm -hmm. Then they make this choice Mm -hmm. that these characters are going to be young and sexy. And I think maybe the biggest problem with the show is I don't think... I I can't track where the show stands morally. Yeah, uh-huh. Because it seems to have an understanding that like what's happening to the handmaids is bad. Yes. But also the show is so invested in the storylines and the feelings uh-huh of the commander and Serena Joy that they come across as sympathetic characters. Yes. Serena, which Serena Joy, I can to a point forgive. Mm-hmm. But, the, but not, not the commander. To, not, not, but not the commander. And also that point to which you can forgive her. It was way shorter than where it the, is. The show has gone way beyond that. Yeah. So um, I don't get what I, I, I honestly think there's no. There's no like point. They're just like, they're just doing what they think they have to do for like prestige TV storytelling mm-hmm. by telling these like morally gray, ambiguous, like you could sympathize with anyone. Um, aren't these lives interesting? Yeah, I'm sort so of. interested in the life of a systematic rapist <laughs> and his friends. And. That and and they're doing that to the to the detriment of like. Well, I'm I'm like really turned off by the show, uh-huh. par- partly because like, the show doesn't doesn't have any villains when it should. Yeah, it's like it's like, and that's and I, actually, I'm just coming up with this reading of it right now. But it is, it is like a 35 year old story. Mm-hmm. But so it's like it's like a 2019 adaptation of like a 1985 story mm-hmm. and like villains that are like villains that are like villains mm-hmm. are not very popular in popular fiction right now. Yeah, it's true. Like like the popular thing ever since The Sopranos mm-hmm. has been like, what if you got to know a horrible person Mm -hmm. and you like kind of rooted for them but but it was dangerous yeah so like they've taken that approach Mm -hmm. from like breaking bad and the sopranos and mad men yeah and like applied it to a margaret atwood novel from 1985 Mm -hmm. like like the the the, they don't jibe together yes okay speaking of not jibing together Mm -hmm. Here's another big picture thing that I think will make a nice transition from big picture to picking nits. Mm-hmm. 
And this is a subject that we could spend the entire episode talking about. Race. And I think needle drops. Needle drops. (laughs) No, um, um, race is an issue that should never be tackled with a quick sidebar. Let let me let me say this. But do you want to do a quick sidebar on race? (laughs) This is what I will say about race. I think that yeah. race, I, th- I, I've read, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is that I think that the book handles race better than the TV show in the uh-huh. sense that it basically says, Hey, systematic and systemic racism didn't go away. So mm-hmm. you can see how that played out. Right. Um, two, I think that, um, the, the criticism overall that The Handmaid's Tale just becomes sort of a white person's, uh, torture porn fantasy in the sense that, mm-hmm. like, black people have to deal with this shit already and white people don't, I think mm-hmm. is a very legitimate criticism. And I also think that there have been a lot of people of color who have written about this way better than we could ever talk about. So I think that it's okay that we don't talk about that specifically. Uh, we yeah. will go out of our way to find resources that we will put in the show notes. Absolutely. But suffice to say, the show has been criticized for taking this kind of post-racial view of race where they have like sort of semi-blind casting mm-hmm. and um there's is the is the episode that I I think it is I think yes. the episode that I had you watch is the one where they where Lydia says they don't want a handmade they don't, don't want an HOC <laughs> that particular uh yes that particular f- commander's family uh won't take a handmaid of color yeah uh, they wrote into the show um, as if that wouldn't be uh, every family's policy. <laughs> all of them, because none of the commanders are are black. They're all white. Yeah, that I, I that say, I can think of that I've seen. I want to say I want to say that that's true. Yes, um, and if it and I might it's probably just my imagination if I'm remembering otherwise. Um, Okay. Uh, do you know what a needle drop is? A needle drop is that when, um, when it's like a. Oh, I guess I don't. I think I'm thinking of like a mixture between like a a needle scratch and like uh, when something sort of like there's silence and something big happens, or there's something big happens mm. and then there's silence, which I'm guessing is a needle scratch. So I guess I don't. <laughs> Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be like a moment like that. Mm-hmm. A needle drop, as in when you drop a needle onto a record. Okay, so I am still thinking it, of a record. Yes, it's it's a reference to playing a record. Um, it's just when a song plays. Oh. But it's not score. Right. Score is, you, you know, like instrumental. Music. What's that? You have problems with the music. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the same as we were talking about in the last episode. Uh-huh. Um, the, the, the needle drop in that Van Gogh scene of Doctor Who yes. ruins the scene for me because yes. the song is so terrible. Uh-huh. Um, n- needle drops like non-diegetic voiceover, mm-hmm. maybe as a rule of thumb and rules are always made to be bent and broken, but yeah. maybe as a general rule of thumb are supposed to be used sparingly. Yeah. The Handmaid's Tale, the Hulu original show, has what I would call a shallow bag of tricks. Okay. And some of those tricks are effective mm-hmm. and they work, but they are few in number mm-hmm. and they are repeated mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And the main items in the shallow bag of tricks are close-ups of Elizabeth Moss mm-hmm. emoting. Mm-hmm. 
dimly lit rooms where characters are backlit by very large windows, mm-hmm. which is their most effective trick. It's. Be- I think. The- I think. I know that you have problems with some of the shooting, but I think it's pretty. I think the show is quite beautiful to look at the a lot of the time. Thing, in my opinion, the best thing that you can say about the show, the 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 yes, is the cinematography is often gorgeous. Yeah. Some of the production design is weird. Okay, uh, except, but yeah. The ci- but the cinematography, yeah. except for when you get into the close-ups thing, mm-hmm. because that's also part of the cine- cinematography. Sh- surely, yes. And, and, and I did a little research because I wrote in my notes, mm-hmm. in season three, when Dana and I were dunking on the show, mm-hmm. we would say like, oh my God, it's another episode where the last shot is a close-up on her. Yeah. And we were going like, oh, my God, every episode ends the same way. So I wrote that in my notes, and then I was like, what if I tested this? And I went back, and I looked at the last shot of every episode. Mm-hmm. How uh, There are 13 episodes in season three. Mm-hmm. How many, in your opinion, would be too many to have basically the same last shot? More than half. Okay, 11 out of 13 no! <laughs> episodes of season three end with some close-up of Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, what did the other two end so, with? One is like uh, panning up on an emotional traffic jam. Okay. And um, I think the other... <laughs> I think the other is a wide shot in a flashback. Okay. It's, it's like her and uh, Luke and baby Hannah okay. in a flashback. Uh-huh. Um, so... Uh, I was oh I was talking about needle drops. Yes. So the biggest thing in their shallow bag of tricks is needle drops. Not an episode goes by without at least one needle drop, mm-hmm. which is like a, a song that was not written for the show. Yes. That is um, often recognizable to mm-hmm. the viewer. And I said in the last episode, I think it is a crucial error when you. Um, put like a really contemporary song mm-hmm. in your in your show as a needle drop because you never know what's going to age very badly mm-hmm. and what's going to make make people decades later go like oh my god that song is so like 2019 yeah and it's it's very embarrassing we would never listen to that today like never put like blurred um, lines over one of the like uh, scenes sure. where they're having the ceremony that would be a bad choice <laughs> that, yeah that to be clear I. I don't recall that. No, happening. that doesn't so, happen. That doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, that's that, that they haven't. I was trying to come up with the worst thing I could think yeah. of. No, that would be very bad. No, <laughs> certainly. Um, you you thought of it. Um, okay, so the first sign that something weird was going on mm-hmm. was in season uh, season one, episode two, and uh, this episode is memorable for this is when she starts to get called into the commander's office Mm -hmm. and she plays scrabble with him right and uh then she uh exits the next morning and her walking partner is no longer rory gilmore Mm -hmm. it's another woman the needle drop that they use in this episode is um a song that anyone who has seen The Breakfast Club would recognize as the song from The Breakfast Club. Oh, my God. Um, and I have it in my notes. Uh, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. Right. Yes. 
Oh, I see. Uh-huh. So, Too so I watched you. this and it, it was the second episode ever. And I, I honestly, at the time, like I was really, I was, re, it was ep- only episode two. Yeah. I was like really giving the show a chance. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I like that song. That's like a weird, like jarring juxtaposition mm-hmm. to like hear this song I like juxtaposed with like this horrible vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Like I, I give them credit for doing something interesting. Um, and then, uh, while well, they just, they just keep doing it. Um, and then the first example of something that was like a needle drop, but not an ex- interesting juxtaposition. And it gets into this, like, it really feels like a first draft mm-hmm. is in season one when the commander takes her to the place with the Jezebels yeah. and they play white rabbit with Jefferson air uh, by Jefferson airplane. Oh, uh-huh. They're like, one pill makes you bigger and <laughs> that song. Yeah. And somebody pointed out on Twitter, like, oh, like The Handmaid's Tale, they're only like the 1000th show or movie to use like this song mm-hmm. for the moment where the main character like steps into a world that's like yeah. scary and foreign to them and like depraved mm-hmm. and like... So, uh, so just big picture thinking. Yeah. Like what what are they what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Like and, and I'd be interested to hear if you have an answer to this question. Like So you you just brought up an example of of White Rabbit being mid episode. I Yeah. So you, mainly the, every every there is no end credits theme. Yes. To the Handmaid's Tale yes. as some shows have. The end credits, it's, I think, if I remember correctly, it's always a needle drop. Yes. And and so I think Sarah had actually mentioned to me mm-hmm. that you did not like the music. So because of that, <laughs> I started paying attention to it a little bit more. Yeah. You were listening for it. And I only noticed this uh, phenomenon mostly at the end. I don't think mm-hmm. it ha- – I mean, you just gave it a great example of a terrible usage of it. But I feel yeah. like for the most part, it, it happens at the end. And I yeah. always kind of read that as, and I'm not saying this is good, mm-hmm. but it always feels like I'm transitioning back into the real world. Oh, interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it always feels like we've gotten through the whole episode. There's been a lot of like, like, uh, sounds yeah. when like something bad mm-hmm. is happening. And yeah. then, you know, there's a pop song that plays and it's yeah. like, and then you're like in, and then I'm like, oh, this episode's over. Show's and, over. And I can it, go on with my life. Yes, basically. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's good, but that yeah. is always what it felt like to me. And it was a little bit less offensive to me that it happened at the very end because it wasn't as jarring to me. That's a really interesting reading, and I'm glad I asked you about it. Um, I would like to compare uh, what the show is doing to two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first is because at this point it feels mandatory that there's going to be a needle drop at the end of each episode. Mm-hmm. It's like Scrubs. Yes. Uh-huh. Which is a show where uh, it was mandatory that every episode sort of culminate in a needle drop mm-hmm. and you hear like a song Z- that like Zach Braff, Zach Braff would put on, yeah, put on the Garden State soundtrack uh-huh. or something like that. Um, and the other thing I'll compare it to, it's 2019. When you think of 
popular media of the past uh, several years, Mm -hmm. when you think of needle drops, what do you think of? Correct. Guardians of the Galaxy. I was going to say Guardians of the Galaxy. Does that count as a needle drop? Absolutely. Okay, okay. Sorry, I guess I was thinking... When I think of the music in Guardians of the Galaxy, I largely you're gonna say it's because it has a diegetic source. Yes, because it, but it, it doesn't. I know it doesn't always, but that that yeah. was what I think of. Yeah, because you're it saying like, yes, like, it's, click, it's, click. it's woven into the story yes. in the way that needle drops usually aren't. Yes, but still, like the from the way that I'm looking at it right now, like the strategy is the same. I just want to say like, I I knew I thought that might be where you're going, but I didn't want to be dumb and say that and have you be like, those aren't needle drops, <laughs> that's diegetic sound, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Oh, yes, yeah, that's exactly the sort of yes error that I would catch you in. So you know me better than I know myself, uh, uh, setting you up for that. Uh-huh. So. Um, yeah, no, that's what I was going to say is like it, guardians of the galaxy. You have this, uh, material, um, and it's, it's the farthest thing literally from grounded, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's big space, colorful cartoon yes. movie. And then also it's like, what if there were fun pop songs that you recognize yeah. from like the seventies and the eighties? Mm-hmm. And that is like a huge thing that people remember about guardians of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And it works, in my opinion, very well. Yes. Because the tone of Guardians of the Galaxy is big, fun cartoon with sometimes a surprising amount of pathos. Mm-hmm. And the needle drops serve it very well. And, and, and it accomplishes, like, you know, enhancing the tone or, like, augmenting it in, like, a positive way. Mm-hmm. Which leads my, to my question, what are they doing what are they trying to accomplish using the same technique in The Handmaid's Tale, yeah. which is like the exact opposite yeah. context, uh-huh. like the exact opposite like material yes. that you could be like scoring in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we're approaching 90 minutes. So let's get into the speed round. Okay. Uh, this is where I pick the nits uh, that inspired me to create the Handmaid's Take Twitter uh, that make me go like, hey, did you notice this? Uh-huh. Um, in the uh, on, on a podcast that I love, uh, a, a premium podcast, which used to be called In Voorhees We Trust with Gorley and Rust mm-hmm. when they were talking about the Friday the 13th movies. But now in 2019, it's called In Myers We Trust with Guyers and Rust because <laughs> they're talking about the Halloween movies. Uh-huh. On that podcast, they would call this a gloft, which is a gorly look out for this. Uh-huh. Um, so, so look out for this when you're watching the Hammond Sale. A waft. A waft. I forgot the L. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, look out for this uh, when you're watching the Hammond Sale. I started really looking at the details in season three. I don't, I, I didn't look it up to see what episode it was and i don't remember what the context is i don't remember why this is in the show yeah. i think it may have been a flashback um i think it was in season two the commander shoots somebody yes it's they're in like, season two in a, i saw i saw this yeah they're in a forest uh-huh. the commander is, is you know center frame he's like flanked by guardians uh-huh. um and there's a woman does she have a bag over her head i maybe? don't think it's a woman i think it's two oh. men uh, I, I took a screen grab and I, really? I, yeah, 
I okay. I actually downloaded software, free software on my computer where you can do a, <laughs> a video screen capture so okay. that I could capture it and post it to Twitter and like okay. point out what I saw. Uh-huh. So maybe he shoots a man first, but I, I remember he shoots a woman yeah. like execution style yes, in such a way that when she's shot in the head, she falls out, out of frame. Mm-hmm. And then later... In the same shot, the camera pans out far enough that mm-hmm. we can see her dead body. And in the seconds that the quote unquote dead body is on the screen, you can see the actor breathing. Yes. You can tell if you look at her sweater, if you look at her torso, that uh-huh. person is clearly breathing. Yes. And so that's the sort of thing that makes me go like, oh my gosh, like either nobody noticed this or they- nobody told the actor that they were going to be in the shot. Poss- After they were possibly. killed. But like, just forget about that. Like once, yeah. it's, once it's shot, once it's done, either no one no- looked as closely at the show as I am looking at it as the viewer. Yes. So no one noticed or they did notice uh-huh. and they were like, we, we don't have time to do anything different. Yes. Like this has to go in the show uh-huh. as is. It's like, I keep bringing up Game of Thrones. It's like the Starbucks cup that ended up in that yes. one episode of Game of Thrones. Yes. So I'm always And a water bottle out- later too, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. So I'm always looking out for things like this on The Handmaid's Tale and that's like where it started. So another great example is in the totally bonkers episode that I asked you to watch. Mm-hmm. Season three, episode eight, which is called Unfit. Yes. And this this um, episode is remarkable for two reasons. It It is the quote unquote Aunt Lydia backstory episode. Mm-hmm. It's the first time we get and, a flashback for her. And it's also the supermarket shootout episode. Yes. Also the let's see a baby with a with the cord wrapped around its neck a lot, like more than we needed to. Cool. <sighs> So, here's the nitpick that I have in this episode where we we could literally we, I could spend 2 hours just talking about this episode. Yes. It's fascinating the the whole like Dana's reading of Aunt Lydia's backstory is that she is rejected by one man and then she becomes evil. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the, and the scene where she is reacting to being rejected, she she punches a mirror and with her with bare no fist. blood with no blood. And None. I said, and I said, we had recently watched Batman Returns, and I said to Dana, it, it's 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 the Catwoman, it's the scene where Selena Kyle is becoming Catwoman and like <laughs> fu- fucking up her own apartment. It's, uh, but so, <laughs> but the real nitpick that I want to pick, the real nit that I want to pick is, so I having created the handmaid's handmaids take Twitter. I was on Twitter a lot looking at reactions to The Handmaid's Tale and what The Handmaid's Tale itself would post on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And and they, during season three, they would post like little teasers, like here's what's coming, you know, tonight, tomorrow, whatever on The Handmaid's Tale. And in the teaser for this episode, it's not, it shouldn't be funny. It's not supposed to be funny. I think it's very funny. Yes. The teaser is just a few seconds and it's mostly Aunt Lydia yelling, no. No! God, no! <laughs> and it's out of context. It's very funny. And you they show the shot in the teaser, which is, okay, so there's the, the, the climax of the episode is that a handmaid, a, 
uh, uh, of color mm-hmm. named of Matthew. Yes. Um, oh, wouldn't it be funny if her name was of color? Um, <laughs> <laughs> stupid. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm so stupid. Um, she goes insane because uh, June smiles at her while well, she's talking to Aunt Lydia, making her think that she's talking to Aunt Lydia about of Matthew and she's going to get in trouble. Because so, she has been, to be fair, bullying her for the yes, whole episode. right. Exactly. For good reason, so, but... So when she snaps, she steals a guardian's gun. Yes. And shoots somebody and waves it around. And we see this, like, GoPro on a yeah. gun cam, <laughs> yeah. like, pointing at her going crazy. And then eventually a guardian takes her down and shoots her in such a way that she does this like 720 degree flip. It's like entirely impossible. (laughs) And we see an aerial view of it. Uh And that shot of a handmaid in the grocery store doing that flip was in uh, the uh, teaser on Twitter. Okay. And so I watched that and I scrolled down to look at the comments, people replying to it. And everyone was speculating about who that could be because they're in a handmaid's outfit. Oh, so you can't see. And you see. can't see their face. Mm-hmm. And people in the comments, not comments, but replies on Twitter said, well, it couldn't be of Matthew who it is because that handmaid is clearly white <laughs> because you can see her hands. Oh, my because it is a stunt person who is white. Who is white? Oh my God. <laughs> my, my, I had, I had a nitpick about that exact same. I mean, this is a great thing about you and me being different. Yeah. Um, MythBusters specifically did a test at one point mm. years ago, where mm. they were like, "Is it possible for your body to get thrown when you get shot?" Yeah. And the answer is no, not even mm-hmm. a little bit. So but the fact remember, Margaret Atwood reminds us <laughs> everything that happens in the handmaid's tale has happened in real life. Oh god. So Mythbusters, sorry, but you're debunked. Hey Will. That that myth bust was busted. Oh. Uh oh yes. Is it time for a, a segment or something? You've got smug mail. Oh, I believe I mentioned in our oh. mailbag episode. Is this the surprise from Dave Otay of the podcast, Sarah? <laughs> yes. Oh. That in ju- in June, I believe, actually, it might have been July. Mm. I, mm. I, don't, I can't see the date on here, but I, I noticed that earlier. Yeah. Um, I had said when we were planning this season that this was going to be one of the episodes. And mm-hmm. Sarah said to me that I should bring this up. Well, this is what she said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, the show is bad. So I don't think it's too mean because <laughs> I said that we were going to uh-huh. be being mean. But yes, I knew that that was what he was going to talk about. The one thing I feel like he will miss and that I think you should bring up is this. If there's one th- positive thing that's come out of the show, it's the striking visual image, the red cloak outfit that the handmaids wear that conveys the gravitas of the predicat- predicament women are in both historically and at this point in time. Like seeing people dressed up as handmaids walk into Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, for instance, whether or not the show sucks, that means something. Uh-huh. Okay. And so that's our mid-season mailbag. <laughs> I'm going to take a pause that I might edit out. Okay. Just because I read something about the costumes. And uh, it's possible I 
don't have this bookmarked anymore. Part of my homework for this episode was reading reviews of the Testaments. Mm-hmm. And one of the reviews was really talking about um, the culture and the show and the costumes and ev- and the whole moment. Oh, uh, here it is. It's in the New Yorker. I might edit this out if it's pointless, but um, in book reviews, Margaret Atwood expands the world of The Handmaid's Tale. In The Testaments, the novelist examines the kinds of complicity that are required for constructing constructing such a frightening future. This is by Gia Tolentino, published mm-hmm. September 5th, 2019. And this is an excerpt. I'm just doing a control F for the word costume. At first, I found it moving to see women at protests in handmade garb. Sometimes they carried signs with the dog Latin phrase, Nolite te bastardes carbor undorum, which in Atwood's novel is scribbled on Offred's closet, a message from a previous handmaid, don't let the bastards grind you down. The costumes could be read as an expression of interclass solidarity. Women with the time and the resources to protest tend not to be those who suffer first when reproductive rights are restricted, but the former were saying on behalf of the latter that they would fight for all of us. Um, And it moves on to something else. There's another reference to costumes here later. Um, Yeah, that's not relevant. Okay, never mind. So there, we we had a moment to talk about that. (laughs) um okay final nitpicks um this is the this is this is the one um i mean the whole thing drives me crazy yeah and in a way um like you were talking about like the fantasy aspect of like the, the the fiction is like you know what if the horrible things that regularly happen to minorities happen to white people yeah. Um and um that resonates with me on a level of there's a a feeling that I will call vexation. Mm-hmm. That I experience regularly. Mm-hmm. And most times it is outside of my control. Mm-hmm. It happens when you say um get an email from a superior at work mm-hmm. on whom your survival depends. Yeah. And the email says something like, uh, I have a question about this thing. Is it like A or is it more like B? Uh, and that's the way it's framed. Mm-hmm. And you know for a fact that it can be neither. Yes. And that anyone should know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, like... Uh, it's like gaslighting and I'm in, I'm in such a position of privilege that, you know, I shouldn't invoke gaslighting in my yeah. own experience, but um that that the feel that feeling of vexation is like when your your sense of reality doesn't jibe with what people are communicating to you about their sense of reality. Yeah. And the fantasy is um what if I could control that so that like the fantasy is not eliminating it from my life. Mm-hmm. The fantasy is like, what if I controlled the stimuli that were coming into me that like I could get some kind of satisfaction from like the vexation that it causes in yeah. me. And that's part of the reason that I watch a show just to dunk on it uh-huh. is to go like, oh, just pointing out the errors and going like, ah, 
ha, I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. This isn't that. It's this. Mm-hmm. So if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, mm-hmm. you know that a message will appear, a kind of advertisement that says, for a look behind the scenes, go to the show page for the inside the episodes. Oh, right. Yeah. I've never done that. Well, I have because I'm because I'm obsessed Mm -hmm. (laughs) with the making of this show. Um, And uh, this is the sort of thing that if you're watching on HBO Go or HBO Now, if you're watching like Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. they will just stick this on to the end of the episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah. And I think it was um, Nicole Silverberg on Twitter who characterized those behind the scenes Game of Thrones as the two show creators, DB and DB, Uh just just saying like. Here's what you just saw. We wrote it. Aren't we good boys? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so The Handmaid's Tale does the same thing, but they don't make you watch it. You have to seek it out. Uh-huh. And you go to the show page and there's a section called Inside the Episodes. And if you went there during season three, you would find that they weren't there. Oh, okay. But they did exist. They were in another section on the show page called like extras or okay, something yeah, like that, uh-huh. where they put like the trailers, trailers for the episodes. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that is vexing. Mm-hmm. And then season three, episode 12 happened. And uh, there's this new character um, in season three played by Christopher Maloney who is like a super commander Mm -hmm. because part of season three is like, what if they went to Washington DC? Yeah. And what if counterintuitively that was also the capital of Gilead Uh in addition to being the capital of the United States of America? Yeah. And what if they made, what if they built an addition onto the Washington monument so that it was shaped like a cross. Which is just structurally never going to happen. Like, the Washington Monument's so fucking fragile to begin with. It's like we get then, an earthquake and they're like, oh, God, it's closed for three years. And then living in Washington, D.C. is this super commander and his family. Uh-huh. And there's this moment where you meet them and you meet him and his wife and then all their children come rushing into the room. And it's like, oh, my gosh. You've never seen so many children in one place in Gilead. This is how privileged they are. They have multiple, they have a big family. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, spoiler alert, um, the super commander dies later in the season. Now, it is also, in my opinion, heavily implied that he is gay. Okay. Or at least not strictly straight. Uh Uh-huh. That has no consequences whatsoever. <laughs> like that has nothing to do with what happens. Yeah. It's just there. Yeah. Weird. Uh-huh. But the reason I'm talking about these characters is because when he, after he dies, there's a scene where his wife says in the show, she's very distraught. And she says, I cannot be a single mother of six children. Then I watched the inside the episode. And you've seen behind the scenes things before, Mm -hmm. and you know that it's just interviews with cast and crew intercut with moments from the show that you've already seen. Yeah. Little snippets of it. And sometimes the snippets, like the shots are different. Mm -hmm. Like they're not different necessarily, but like 
they're edited differently so mm-hmm. that like you'll hear audio from the episode that you just watched, but the visual you're seeing is a different visual from mm-hmm. the same episode. Mm-hmm. So in the show, you see a shot of the wife saying the words, I will not be a single mother. I cannot be a single mother of six children. In the Inside the episode, you see that scene recut so that you hear her say it, but you're looking at June. Mm-hmm. And what you hear her say is... I cannot be a single mother of five children. What? A different number of children. Yeah. What? Exactly. (laughs) It almost defies explanation. (laughs) Now, you can come up with an explanation. Uh Uh-huh. Like these inside the episodes are being made concurrently with the episodes themselves yeah. and they're being edited differently and maybe by different people and they have different takes of different things. But you also have to explain the fact that they got different takes of her saying it differently. Yes. With a different number. So that could be explained by one of them was a mistake that they held on to for some reason or they had already shot the scene where they established how many children they had. And then by the time they were shooting that scene where she's widowed, then on the day they had forgotten what the correct number was. So they got the line with multiple numbers for safety or they were shot out of order And they shot that first and they hadn't figured out how many kids there were going to be yet. So they got multiple takes for safety because it hadn't been established what was canon yet. Yeah. Just just imagine how I felt. (laughs) You felt like you had found them out. Observing that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That would be the sort of thing that if if that happened to me, I would have called Kenny. <laughs> I would have been like Kenny. I need to tell you what I just learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky for me that Dana was in the room, <laughs> and I and 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 I caught it, and she didn't catch it, and I had to say, "Wait, I think." And then I had to load up the episode again, and I had to get right to that scene, <laughs> and I had to put them back to back and confirm it. And by God, well, we're at the end of our time, and I'm at the end of my rope. I have one very small thing to tell you that I think the TV show really helped me with. Okay. When I read the book multiple times and they Mm -hmm. explained the ceremony, which is not inherently a funny thing. Uh Uh-huh. And they described – I don't have the actual text in front of me. They Mm -hmm. described the handmaid as sitting uh, in the legs of the commander's wife and there's Mm -hmm. these skirts happening. There's all these things happening. Yeah. I thought that the skirt of the commander's wife was over top of the torso mm-hmm. of the handmaid. Yeah. I thought that that was, that was how they were was becoming a, one person. It was a kind of human centipede. Yes. Yes. But with just a skirt, mm-hmm. which now, now that I see the show, and maybe maybe I'm right, actually, you know, and then they were like, that would yeah. be stupid if we filmed that it that way. That would look silly, yeah. But as soon as I saw the show, I was like, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> and I mean, if the show keeps, honestly, if the show keeps going for about two more years, 
it's probably inevitable that we'll see like, well, the next measure that they take is they um, take the top half of a wife <laughs> and they just sew on the bottom half of a handmaid who's fertile. Because in season three, you also get when they go to D.C., the handmaids in D.C., they're treated even worse and their <laughs> mouths are covered. Oh, they see, have the like. But yes, not, not only that. But when one of them takes the mouth covering off in private with June sleeping in the same room as her, guess what? Her mouth, it's got rings in it. Oh, God. Her lips are sealed by rings because um, I guess the most precious commodity, which is like fertile women, mm -hmm. um, they don't have to like eat solid foods. Like they can't be expected yeah, exactly. to like – have like a healthy diet or like be treated in such a way that like you would try to make them as healthy as possible. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's just like sort of overlooking that like the speaking hole is the same as the eating <laughs> hole. Like they just wrote that into the show and they were like, nobody was like paying attention enough or like no one had the time to like think of that. Dana yeah. has risen her hand. Do Are we going to have a she, guest bud? I don't know if she wants to contribute or interrupt. So I... I read somewhere that the the creators or the writers of that um, they they have since said that those rings are removable, so yeah. when they eat, they can remove them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and eat you can think of just how practical and easy that would be um, in these circumstances. Okay, so I've I've decided Thanks, what Dana. Thank you, Dana. I I've decided what I want to leave you with, okay. and it is an excerpt from a real script. From a real episode oh, of The please, Handmaid's Tale. Oh, please. Please do, Will. And I was able to find it because this script was Emmy nominated. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the Handmaid's Tale has won quite an impressive number of Emmys and Golden Globes and has been nominated for even more. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Elizabeth Moss herself has won for her performance. And Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia, has won for her performance. Samira Wiley. I think has won uh, for her performance as Moira. Yeah, who um, I really like her, by the way. Interestingly categorized as a guest actress and not a supporting performer. Well, that's weird, but... Um, and uh, so, oh, Bradley Whitford uh, has won uh, most recently. And also, uh, speaking of guest actresses, the woman who plays June's uh, mother in Flashbacks mm -hmm. uh, has won uh, an Emmy. Um so this script was the most recent one to be nominated because when a television show is nominated for writing, a particular episode's script is submitted, mm -hmm. not just the show in general. So this episode is one called Holly, mm -hmm. and it's the one with the wolf and the voice. Of, you you've seen this. Wait, it's what the one where she, It's the one where she gives birth at the end. She's alone because she's tried to escape, but things went wrong. Um, whoever brought her, she, she goes to the house to see her daughter. Oh, is this in and season then, two? Yes. Okay. This is the next episode I have to watch. Oh my gosh. Okay. So but please, please tell me. So she's alone and she's going to try to leave by herself. Yeah. But she can't because she goes into labor. Mm -hmm. But her best chance of leaving is a car in the garage. Mm -hmm. She finds the key. She starts the car. Mm -hmm. She tunes the radio to Radio Free America. Mm -hmm. So it's being broadcast from somewhere outside Gilead, someplace that is still America. 
and the voice on the radio, not the character, mind you, but the real life person, mm-hmm. is Oprah Winfrey. No! Which goes into a whole thing. I haven't even mentioned that, like, the culture around the show, beside being, besides being, like, weirdly, like, how do you commercialize this serious thing? It's also a culture of what I would call hashtag resistance. Yeah. Right? It's, like, performative, like, never Trumpism. And I, I think Oprah is, like, a, like, a beacon of mm-hmm. that. Like, what if a, what if a woman of color was super rich? <laughs> Is, you know, isn't that a, a role model? Um, and, uh, so, uh, you hear Oprah, um, and this is, this is, uh, as written in the script, um, found online, uh, in the scene. Mm-hmm. DJ on radio. We'll have another news update at the top of the hour. This is Radio Free America broadcasting from somewhere in the great white north on your AM dial and online. <laughs> Okay, and now a tune to remind everyone who's listening, American Patriot or Gilead Trader, that we are still here. Stars and stripes forever, baby. The DJ starts a song. Something anthemic and American. (coughs) Springsteen, maybe. Or CCR. (laughs) Public Enemy, Beyonce. What a range. I don't, I don't remember what the song is. <laughs> that's your homework. Oh, Dawson's, my God. That's your homework. To Tweet up, at us. Uh, pull up the season two episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, uh, season two episode. Uh, the episode's called Holly. Uh-huh. Uh, find that scene where she listens to the radio. Find out. Um, did that song fall somewhere on the spectrum from oh Springsteen to Beyonce? <laughs> Well, Will, I mean, I think it's time to say it. Blessed be the, f- blessed be the fruit. May the pod end. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. <laughs> Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website. Elizabeth Deanna Morris Lakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>